You're listening to At Any Rate, J.P. Morgan's global research podcast, where we take a look at the story behind some of the biggest trends and themes in fixed income, currency, and commodity markets today. I'm your host, Phoebe White, rate strategist and head of U.S. inflation market strategy. And today I'm joined by Mike Hansen, senior global economist, and Natasha Kanova, head of commodity strategy. And today I want to dig into the inflation data we received this week, the reaction markets, and where we're headed from here. And as we look ahead, there are two important questions to address. First, why the Fed's preferred inflation measure, core PCE, has softened so much more than core CPI? And could the softening in PCE open the door to earlier rate cuts? Second, what's going on with geopolitical events? Could the recent escalations in the Middle East drive not only energy prices higher, but also core goods inflation higher as well? So I'm happy to have Mike and Natasha on today to help answer those questions. Um, but first, let's just start with the events of the week. CPI was released on Thursday, came in pretty close to consensus, at least on the core side, which rose three tenths on the month, 0.31 to two decimals. It ticked down to 3.9% over a year ago, and it's running 3.3% annualized in the last three months. That is a step down from the 5% pace we were seeing through the spring, but still you know, clearly elevated and showing signs of stickiness since the middle of last year. Uh, so while that number was not exactly soft, it seemed to be good enough for markets, especially with markets latching on to the softer implications for core PCE. We did see the yield curve twist steeper in the aftermath of the report. Front end yields fell pretty dramatically. Um, the move extended Friday after the softer PPI report. And we now have two-year yields down more than 20 basis points in two days as of this recording. And the broad 230s curve has steepened back to positive disinverted levels. That's the steepest levels in nearly 18 months. And at the very front end, we're priced for about an 80% probability of a cut in March and more than 160 basis points of easing this year. So Mike, let's talk about the takeaways from this report because your team is estimating that with the CPI and PPI data in hand, core PCE rose just 0.21% in December. That would bring the 12-month rate to 3%. Um, the three-month and six-month annualized rates, though, below 2%. And again, that's versus 3.3% um, annualized on core CPI. So what do you see driving this wedge right now? And how do you see those forces evolving in the coming months? Yeah, thanks, Phoebe. There's a, I think there's a number of factors going on here. You know, I think when you step back for just a second before we focus on the wedge, it's, it's worth, worth emphasizing that much of the disinflation has happened in the good side of the economy rather than the services side. And I think that's going to be important in understanding the wedge to some extent. Um, and I think in particular on the services side, obviously shelter has a much larger weight in CPI than PCE. Um, and shelter inflation is still running you know, kind of hot relative to overall core. So that is helping to put uh, somewhat higher inflation into your CPI measure than into your PCE measure. Um, there's also obviously some differences in the way in which uh, different components are calculated, the scope of the PCE versus the CPI. For example, there's been a really big jump in medical insurance costs. It's a basically a CPI only phenomenon. Um, medical share, of course, is a larger relative share in PCE than CPI. Uh, and so far, you haven't seen much of a pickup in, in medical uh, costs to the same extent more broadly in the PCE, uh, although you could argue there's some risk of that given some other data that we've seen. Um, the other thing that we've noticed is that non-market prices, uh, particularly on the services side, particularly in things like financial services and insurance, those are running uh, kind of well below market prices uh, for the, the core PCE. Um, that may be kind of a, a kind of weird temporary idiosyncrasy, uh, perhaps related to what's happening with the rate cycle. Um, 
it's kind of unusual historically, so we really don't expect it's going to persist. Um, and so that could mean that the wedge will close, perhaps by, by CPI coming down. But again, these non-market prices could correct higher. There is, I think, the potential possibly for sort of hospital care and some parts of the um, PCE healthcare to move back up. We've seen a, a big pickup, for example, in wages in that sector. So, you know, maybe that gap will close. Maybe it'll persist. It's a, it's a little uncertain at this point. Um, you did ask, what does it mean for the Fed? And at least personally, you know, I think it's going to be difficult for the Fed to point to PCE only, let alone point to something other than like a year ago rate and say, this is an obvious justification for us to ease in the near term. We don't have the Fed easing until June, which is, you know, a whole quarter later than the market is currently pricing. Right. And so I guess it sort of depends on how the Fed is just kind of interpreting the broad inflation data and what's going on with the inflation process. Um, so when we think about even just core services, uh, mm -hmm. I guess, particularly in the PCE, it's sort of, I guess what you're saying, this horse race between softening rent inflation and a potential reacceleration in some of those other core services components, especially those sort of non-market um, right. services components. Uh, but let's now just kind of turn to the, the core goods side of things, because uh, mm -hmm. I guess there's sort of this horse race there, too, um, if we could be getting a reacceleration on that front. Um, so can you just talk us through what's happening with supply chains right now and the recent rise in shipping costs that we're seeing? Yeah. And again, to put this in a little bit of context, in, in the first half of last year, core goods inflation at an annual rate was running at about 2%. And the second half was running almost minus 2%. So there's been a really notable shift in, in goods inflation, core goods inflation. And the, the question really is whether that's going to persist. I think there are a variety of reasons to think that that minus 2% is not a sustainable rate of deflation in, in core goods. But as you mentioned, one of the things that's happening recently is these supply chain dislocations, right? And they're basically acting like a reduction in, in global shipping volumes. And so it's our global shipping capacity. And so it's, it's potentially putting some upward pressure on uh, goods prices as we go forward. So you've got dislocations both in uh, kind of key choke points, if you will, in the global uh, uh, trade uh, system, the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal. In the Suez Canal, it's, it's obviously it's geopolitical issues that have uh, resulted in a number of shipping companies diverting shipments uh, away from the Suez and the Red Sea and basically around the Horn of Africa. Traffic is down 30 to 35%. Um, and it's, you know, it adds a significant cost if you have to reroute around Africa, uh, one to two weeks potential additional total transit time. Uh, so that's going to increase your costs for fuel, for crew, insurance costs are going up. Um, and so, like I said, you know, that plus the fact that it's acting like a, a restraint on shipping capacity is putting some upward pressure on. Panama Canal is not nearly as large of an impact. Um, Think about 12% of global trade goes through the Suez, about 5% goes through Panama, um, mostly between uh, the East Coast of the US and Asia or East Coast and Gulf Coast. Um, and interestingly, from a goods perspective, not nearly as much container traffic goes through the Panama Canal as through the Suez. Uh, it's, a lot of it is, is either bulk goods, uh, things like grains, uh, coal, or um, or um, petroleum. There's actually a, a significant amount of traffic that is exports from the U.S. through the Panama Canal going west back towards Asia for refined petroleum products. Uh, but the two of these things are obviously creating some, some choke points um, in the uh, global supply chain more generally. Um, and so we've seen a, a meaningful pickup in shipping costs globally. Uh, it depends on the route, routes between Asia and Europe, which typically will go through the Suez. 
have seen increases of 200 to nearly 300% over the last, say, four to six weeks. Um, you are seeing some increases in routes from Asia to the U.S. Uh, they're up about maybe 40 to 80%. And some of that is, is Panama, and some of that is just general spillover effects. In context, you know, when you have those global supply chain dislocations in 2021 and 22 because of the pandemic, Utah shipping co costs go up anywhere from four to eight to tenfold. So it's not nearly as large of an increase, but it's it's not trivial uh, at this point. You know, given that context, how much do you think this could impact core goods CPI? Uh, and then also kind of related to that, especially as we think about U.S. inflation, if the Red right. Sea matters more for European trade, how do you yep. think about the split regionally? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's obviously hard to pin down. It depends on a number of things. I think the most important thing it depends upon is the persistence of these dislocations, right? So um, there's obviously been some military action more recently to try to uh, reduce the the number of attacks on ships in the region. You know, if that's successful, then maybe things could normalize relatively quickly and the impact could be fairly low. Uh, conversely, if it drags on for a, a fair bit longer or if the regional conflict were even to intensify, um, you could see a greater impact and it might very well be nonlinear in that context. The other thing to keep in mind is that there is a lag in how these impacts are likely felt. Um, so if you eyeball the data or do some, some relatively simple fiscal analysis, it typically takes like a quarter or two for these shipping cost increases to pass through into consumer prices. Um, your point estimate is maybe something like four months. So you have to make some assumptions about how likely um, you're going to have uh, these increases persist and just how large increases ultimately are going to be. Um, so we did a back of an envelope calculation earlier in the week that some of our uh, clients might have seen where we presume that basically, you know, the increase in prices kind of remain at where they are. And that continues um, through the first quarter. You're talking about perhaps adding as much as half a percent on global goods uh, price inflation during the first half of the year. And again, with the lags, most of that will probably be felt at the earliest late this quarter and early ne you know, into next quarter. But as you mentioned, the impacts are probably most likely to be in Europe. As I mentioned earlier, the routes that appear to be most impacted appear to be in Europe. Uh, I think it's a little bit difficult to get a precise estimate for the impact on goods inflation in the U.S., um, but it is one more factor that's leaning against the idea that the recent deflationary trend can continue. I don't think it's too difficult to see prices move from you know, currently contracting one to two percentage points annual rate, something that's flat or even a little bit positive in coming months. Um, but we'll have to see how it plays out. One of the things we will be monitoring, for example, is what's happening with um, supplier delivery times and the PMI. That's been another useful indicator of where kind of pressures for goods prices are going. And the data we have to this point is only through December. Obviously, this all began at the beginning of December. The survey is basically mid-month to mid-month. So we're not seeing anything yet. But I think what we see something in the January data and the extent to which we see something in the January data will give us some useful guidelines into you know how much that impact might be it's worth noting that the only news i've seen at this point of there being actual any material spillovers into say production has been in europe there's been a couple of, of firms that have announced temporary shutdowns of their auto production for example um, so there are some supply chain disruptions already underway um, these are not big disruptions relative to what we'd seen a few years ago but it's something certainly we're going to keep monitoring and again as you point out the impact looks to be likely larger in europe than the u.s at this point that's interesting. And and the lag clearly matters as well if we think about, you know, will inflation be at a spot by March that the Fed is ready to ease or not? Um, if right. we start feeling the pressures only kind of into the second quarter, um, might not be early enough. Um, well, but, but keep in mind, the Fed knows this is happening, right? And so the Fed has said that they want to be convinced that you're on a sustained 
you know, trend back toward 2% inflation. They they look at a wide range of indicators. So I think it is hard for the Fed, particularly if you look at the minutes, they cite things like, you know, the trimmed mean and the median CPI. Those are still elevated as well. So it may be difficult for the Fed to convince themselves and certainly to convince the general public that there's a strong case uh, by March to engage in, in easing rates if the, all this uncertainty around the inflation outlook is still in place at that point. Okay, so Natasha, let me turn to you. Um, how are you thinking about what's going on in the Red Sea? How does it impact oil supply? And just more broadly, how are you thinking about the risks that these Middle East tensions continue to intensify? Thank you, Phoebe. Well, as strange as it might seem, it, it you know the, the the situation in the Red Sea has not impacting supply. Um, so, in part, this reflects a greater reliance by the Gulf Arab state on overland pipelines. So, for example, bypassing the Strait. Saudi Arabia can use its uh, east-west mega pipeline with about 5 million barrels per day of capacity to transport crude from its fields in the Persian Gulf to the city of Yanbo in the Red Sea. And then oil is exported north to Europe through the Suez Canal or the Sumat pipeline. Uh, interestingly, more oil exits the Red Sea northbound via the Suez Canal or southbound via the Bab el-Mandeb Strait that enters the Red Sea through those uh, checkpoints. So we estimate a total of about 7 million barrels per day oil flows through the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. And out of that, uh, about half is northbound, mostly from the Middle East to Europe. Uh, and the other one is actually flowing south, uh, directed predominantly to Asia. Uh, these flows have significantly increased since the Russian-Ukraine war. Uh, large volumes of Russian oil are flowing southbound. Uh, by our estimate, is about you know Russia accounts about 74% of the Suez southbound oil traffic. Uh, in 2023, for example, in 2021, it was about 30%. So majority of that is going to India and China. Um, so, but again, you know, as uh, as uh, Mike pointed out, is that there is a way to avoid the Red Sea altogether. Yes, and the, the, you're just going through the uh, through the southern tip of Africa around the Cape of Good Hope. Uh, Mike also pointed out that it's increasing the transit times by about eight to nine days. So it's leading to higher demand for oil tankers yes, because oil tankers are traveling longer, but at the same time, you know, it's leading to the higher freight rates, insurance costs are also rising and so on. So we actually uh, calculated the impact and this the eight-day increase in the journey time across those 7 million barrels per day of oil flows would add about $2 to the brand price. And we're observing is that actually some volumes, not significant volumes, not even close to what Mike was mentioning in terms of containers, uh, that, you know, how much traffic has been disrupted in the case of oil and LNG gas uh, cargos, there is not that much. So hence, you know, no disruption on the supply side, just, you know, oil is longer on, on water. Uh, so on the Middle East escalations, uh, so we, we're taking a cue from history. So since 1967, we had 20 major uh, military confrontation in the Middle East and North Africa, 11 of them involving Israel. So with the exception of the Yom Kippur War of 1973, uh, none of the other Israeli conflicts uh, had lasting medium-term uh, impacts on oil prices. Similarly, if you look at the other military conflicts in the Middle East, uh, for example, like the Syrian civil war in 2011, the Yemeni cival war in 2014, um, ISIS advancements, for example, into northern Iraq again in 2014. Um, so again, none of that had considerable supply loss in, uh, in the aftermath of a conflict, resulting again in no impact of the oil price. So in contrast, events that are involving a major regional oil producer tend to have a material impact on the oil prices. And again, we have a couple examples of that. It's, you know, the first Gulf War, 
in the 1990s, the second Gulf War, the conflict in the Niger Delta, the Libyan Civil War in 2011, the fall of Mosul, all of them uh, had, you know, clearly a direct impact on oil supply, uh, subsequently boosting oil prices. We estimated the premium in those uh, in those cases about seven to fourteen dollars per barrel. Where do we stand today? Um, so our view is that, uh, at least that's our observation, is that all significant parties in the current conflict have powerful incentives to avoid the widening of the war beyond the Israeli-Gaza borders, uh, and so far they have acted accordingly. So hence, you you, you know, you see this in the price uh, that there is very, very limited amount of risk premium currently in uh, price thing. Okay, so just briefly, where does that leave you with your oil targets, Mm -hmm. especially headed into the middle of the year? Right. So um, to those of you guys who are following our research, as you know, it's there's no change in the view. So the fair value of Brent in January is $74. So I think $2 on top of that is absolutely fair just because, you know, the it does take longer just to move oil around the, the Horn of South Africa. So uh, overall, in in general, you know, our observation is we're about fairly valued. So we, we're going in our price forecast to mid-80s by April, high 80s by, by May. Uh, average price for the year is $83. So it's not that much different from what we averaged in 2023. Um, so we're optimistic on demand, and we believe that actually demand will be the main driver uh, of the price this year. Um, but similarly to 2023, we believe growth in non-OPEC supply will be sufficient to offset all growth in global demand, leaving OPEC having to cut production to balance the market. Uh, but overall, if you be, so last year we had a 20% drop in the oil price, which clearly uh, contributed to some extent to the drop in the, in the inflation this year. There will be no help in our view from the commodities markets. Great, thank you. So if I can just kind of summarize you know, it seems like not a large impact from the Red Sea disruptions to oil prices, limited kind of upside risk in terms of any further es- escalation and tensions, uh, but you still see oil prices, uh, you know, moving, moving higher, higher from here Correct. into the middle of the year. And from Mike, you know, so far estimating a, a fairly small impact for core goods inflation, but it does seem risks are are rising, especially if shipping costs could continue higher if, if uh, dis- the disruptions persist for longer. Um, I guess I would just highlight that this is, you know, coming at a time where, you know, the widening in that core PCE P- CPI wedge and that significant sort of softening in core PCE um, could open the door to an earlier ease from the Fed versus what we have expected. Um, and this is all happening while labor markets have generally proven somewhat more resilient. Um, you know, certainly last week's employment report showed we're not really seeing a big drop off in labor demand. Um, you know, the certainly get that signal from jobless claims this week. So it all seems to keep a soft landing in play for markets. Um, It should keep recession fears at bay in the near term. Um, And it does feel like the risk balance is shifting a bit for inflation markets here. Uh, And rather than kind of looking for any richening to get short front end break evens here, I think we would look for opportunities to sort of fade the cheapness and in some of the sectors along the break even curve. In forward space, at least, you can see some sectors at the front end pricing for CPI inflation under 2.1%, which is looking attractive in this environment. In rates, you know, we're still neutral on duration, given how much easing is already priced in for this year. Um, We have intermediate yields at kind of just under 4%, pretty close to our fair value estimates. But we do like holding 530s yield curve steepeners 
sort of a lower beta long duration proxy and it still offers some relative value here since the curve is still a bit too flat versus drivers and we think that term premium at the long end of the curve should structurally be moving higher given the ongoing supply demand imbalance that we've identified in the treasury market. So with that, let me close. Thanks to Mike and Natasha for joining. Institutional investors can read more about these topics on JP Morgan Markets or reaching out directly with questions. We look forward to continuing the discussion next week on At Any Rate. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please read JP Morgan Research Reports related to its contents for more information, including important disclosures. Copyright 2023, JP Morgan Chase & Co., all rights reserved. This episode was recorded on January 12, 2024.